one of the key misunderstandings of intellectual property is that it's something that's a you know leave it to the patent attorney it's just something that's a, a legal um issue for you know for for the normal person not really to be concerned with but you know, actually on the flip side everybody should be concerned about it Hello, I'm Bruce Berman, your host. Welcome to Understanding IP Matters, a podcast series that looks at the role of intellectual property rights and how creators become entrepreneurs. Brian Hinman started out flying jets for the U.S. Air Force out of college. I was in the Air Force to fly. That's something I think every boy aspires to when he's young. You know, it was interesting because once I was in the Air Force about six and a half years, I got out and took a job as an engineer, and I knew very quickly I did not want to do that. Today, he manages some of the world's most valuable inventions and trade secrets. Understanding IP Matters spoke to Hinman at his home office in Fishkill, New York. Patents, trademarks, and copyrights today often are more valuable than tangible assets like real estate and equipment. To what do you attribute this change? Well, I think it's been, you know, and that's this whole transition into the, um, uh, you know, into the, to the new economy that we're in now. It really has been a transition that happened, you know, way back in 1975 when it was this flip side when 87% or roughly of the S&P 500 was, was really valued on property, plants, and equipment. And I think what made that change is recognition uh, by companies that there is something unique about what they have in the world of the assets that they've got. And I call it the IP stack. Mm-hmm. Being able to look at that and have a vision to understand what that means financially to the company, to the balance sheet, can really um, be an aha moment for them. And that's where I think uh, companies started to recognize. And that's when the flip happened. Uh, to where companies are now recognizing, and, and now it's you know 85% of the S&P 500 is in intangibles, which is everything you just stated. So it's, it's an interesting world we live in, but it continues to get better and better as companies understand the vision, understand what they have, and understanding that it is value that adds to, uh, to their bottom line. Hinman joined IBM in 1996 to head business development, where he helped to generate over $1 billion in annual licensing revenue. Back then, uh, IBM was the king of licensing, if you will. What made that model work, and can that model still work today? I think the model does work uh, for companies like IBM, continues to monetize in a very thoughtful manner. Companies like Ericsson, companies like Nokia, you know, they, they still embrace this commercial model. Philips uh, is another great example. I think what has happened is companies have to make a really a cultural decision within the company. They have to understand. IBM did this very early on. Marshall was a great champion and going to Lou Gerstner and saying, Lou, you know, here's what here's a recipe for success on trying to not only being able to protect ourselves as a company from third-party threats of litigation, but also to monetize not just patents, but the technology, being able to couple know-how and technology with patents, couple that together and create this winning combination. So I think it worked for them, it continues to work for them, and it works for a lot of other companies because they have the infrastructure to support it, they've got the portfolio to back it, 
right? So they got to have a strong, starts with a strong IP portfolio and a team to be able to execute. Wouldn't you say IBM and Philips are kind of outliers as operating companies? Because many operating companies use most of their IP and patents defensively, but Philips, uh, IBM, uh, uh, a few others use patents more proactively. Yeah. And, and you can do that. And that's why I mentioned this whole cultural mindset. So I'll bring up the Philips example. Philips is primarily a company that uh, desires exclusivity in the market. So for the bulk of their healthcare um, and as well as some of their consumer-facing products, they want to have exclusive. They want to be the guy that's out there selling products that nobody else can sell. So the patent is used as you know sort of a, an exclusive measure. But you can have that balance with licensing in areas that are either non-strategic to the company, in which case Philips made a great example of a lot of patents that they have that that weren't strategic, that didn't um, create any issues with customers, suppliers, relationships with with other companies by going after them perhaps with an offensive licensing mindset and you can extract lots of revenue, but also you can, you can choose to create a standard and that's what Philips and also IBM did. So IBM did it in the semiconductor processing. Philips did it in their LED uh, lighting program. So what I mean by that is that they have a technology that's very strategic to the company, something they, they want to continue to foster and have products and solutions and, and generate a lot of revenue. But at the same time, they want to enable an entire ecosystem outside of the company to adopt that as a standard. So if they do that and adopt the technology and the patents as a, an industry standard, when that industry, well, I'm sorry, when that standard evolves and goes to the next generation, that company comes back to Philips, back to IBM and said, hey, I want to continue on this journey. So I want to up that license and, and, and have access to that. So that mm-hmm. creates this standardization. It's, uh, it's kind of the razor blade and the razor uh, yes. philosophy, if you will. Brian, you you've experienced you have experienced licensing trademarks, know-how, as well yeah. as software. Are there differences in monetizing different types of IP and IP rights? There is. Uh, there are uh, very unique differences. Uh, from a valuation standpoint, it it all boils down to the same factor, which is how much of the revenue that you're valuing is directly attributable to that intellectual property that you're trying to license, right? So in the case of a, of a trademark, how much of that brand is really generating revenue? How much is it underscoring the revenue stream of the company that's existing from a business perspective? And how much can you recognize uh, through a license or through a sale of that IP to a third party that can also share in that revenue, right? So, and you really have to really understand that. So, and analyzing uh, the intricacies of, of copyright, so looking at source code or looking at um, trademarks or looking at know-how or patents, you really have to analyze, you know, in the case of patents, obviously looking at the patent claims. What do they relate to? How broad or how narrow are they? How risky is it that they might be invalidated or they might um, perhaps not be infringed? And so you have, there's a lot of different elements you look at depending on the intellectual property that you're looking at. After IBM and Philips, you left to go to a defensive patent purchaser, Allied Security Trust, yes, and yes. then to Unified Patents, where uh, you, which you co-founded. Uh, yes. What was it like going from in-house at an IP giant like IBM or Philips to a defensive startup? So when I was at IBM, I remember the day I left uh, to become the first CEO of AST, and it was a scary moment because here you are in the nice, comfy convenience of a nice big office at IBM company that takes very good care of their employees, very good reputation, and you're leaving to become an entrepreneur. And, and it was a scary moment, but at the same time, I knew that it was a model that was destined for success. And sure enough, AST 
you know, in the leadership right now, Russ Bins, but it really had an evolution of, of really doing well to protect companies in the world of, of, you know, of third parties that aren't doing such nice things. I won't even put a label on them. So, um, but that, that became a, a moment of inflection for me. And plus it was backed by some, some excellent uh, leaders who are still in the world, you know, Joe Byers and Noreen Crawl and, you know, and, and people, uh, you know, uh, Laura Catella, right? So, I mean, these are people that are true IP visionaries. They were on my board and as the initial investors in AST and, and it became a, a model that was great. And then at a unified, similarly, Kevin Jekyll, one of the best, uh, litigators you know he was a, a litigator at, at intuit running their um running their um ip litigation and a great visionary as well he had called me when i was at intradigital and said hey listen this is a model that i'm looking to launch and given your background with ast can you help me think about how to do this the right way and so it was so exciting i left intradigital to join him on that journey and that was excellent as well so i think there are different models that that uh, I wouldn't say necessarily compete. I think they work in parallel with each other and help to um, further this this um, mission along with companies like Lot and OIN. You know, I think it's 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 a great model, and defense is is a very important part of of of, of this journey. Unified Patents has been successful in invalidating patents through research and through the PTAB, uh, Patent Trial and Review Board. Is Unified against licensing? No. Uh, Unified isn't against licensing. The, the thing that Unified tries to do, well, there's a couple of things. One is they try and educate the world on on what it means to have poor quality patents, right? So really what they're focused on is poor quality, right? So they go after, um, you know, they have a, a generous number of members in their club and various clubs, right? So they protect different industry segments and, and they're expanding into other offerings as well. I, I kudos to Kevin and to Sean to do that. Uh, but they're looking at, at this this whole element of poor quality claims uh, embodied within a patent. Because what that does is it drags down the whole system. If there's a poor quality patent that somebody has and, and they're asserting it against an operating company, they have to defend it. They have to spend money to do that. And why should they do that if it's a poor quality patent to begin with? And so they go to the PTAB, they challenge it, and they have very good success in doing that. So, you know, so applause to them. And it's a great model that has been sustained from the very moment of inception up until today. So very good. In 2018, Hinman was named Chief Innovation Officer at Aon IP Solutions. He helps to manage the risk associated with intellectual property, including raising sufficient capital to use and defend it. Uh, Aon IP Solutions is a departure from your prior experience with IP creators and owners. Aon is focused on risk management and IP finance. What took you in this direction? So I was coming off my assignment at Phillips. I was living in the Netherlands and wanted to become closer, you know, back to family. And so relocated back to New York um, uh, where I had a home. And, but I was looking for something different. I did some consulting for, uh, for a short time for a large uh, automaker here in the U.S. And then I decided to, uh, to seek something. I've been chief, chief IP officer for a number of companies and I wanted to do something different. Um, Lewis Lee, who's one of the key visionaries that a lot of people, you know, might not have heard of, but he's he's been very instrumental in really shaping uh, behind the scenes and looking at the whole I, uh, IP as an asset class. Was running a law firm called Lee and Hayes, Spokane, Washington. Was coming off of that, and, and Aon did an acquisition of that piece of his firm that was focused on this business of IP, and he was looking for. Um, you know, to launch this and asked me if I wanted to join him on this journey to help lead this journey. And, and it was something that 
straddles the whole uh, strategy, valuation, and risk. Those three verticals are really what, what IP Solutions is all about. And, you know, when we've grown, we've grown up to over 150 people and have a number of suite of different offerings that are quite exciting. So it's a journey that that I, I really wanted to do something different. It is truly different to look at this whole world of insurance and risk and trying to understand what that means and how to really help companies on the value equation with the lending practice that we have. So I think it's uh, there's a lot of reasons, but I'm glad the journey has, has begun. What would you say is the biggest impediment to monetizing IP rights today? I think there's a lot of things uh, that, that are impeding it. In the world of licensing, it's become more challenging because companies are more protective of their universe. Uh, they, they're more, um, uh, you know, they've got a lot of weapons of their own. And so if you're going after them for patent infringement, they, you know, they're not going to be as readily um, um, able to take a license or willing to take a license as they may have been, say, 10 years ago. Uh, there's new uh, things available to them. The PTAB has opened up a whole new environment of, of challenge uh, to really to file an IPR on patents. And that's usually the uh, the, the initial um, defense for companies when you're challenged with or backed into a corner with uh, with facing a, an expensive patent license. And so, you know, in, in litigation has uh, has been another avenue that's that's kind of exploded. So I think it's you know, the monetization has become more difficult, but yet it actually has become more rewarding as well because new avenues have opened up overseas. Uh, the, the venues in Germany and the UK and the Netherlands and France uh, have opened up and you can get injunctions much more readily than you can here in the US. So for patent holders, it becomes a more um, uh, an easily to obtain uh, venue for, uh, for going after monetization. But it is a difficult climate. You have fought against NPEs, non-practicing entities, and so-called patent trolls, yet you've worked for companies whose primary business is licensing patents they do not practice in or digital. What's the difference? Well, I think there, there's a, a lot of key differences, right? So InterDigital is a great company. I, you know, I've got a ton of respect. Uh, I know Bill Merritt moved on. He was a great boss. I think what we've got there is a company that's generated, for the most part, all of their own R&D. So they, they spend a ton of money on R&D generating their own IP and going out and, you know, and monetizing. That's their, their, they've done some acquisitions as well, but for the most part, they generate their own. And so it's, um, you know, and even Philips and, and IBM and companies like uh, Ericsson, you know, I mean, you could call them non-practicing entities because they've got patents and they, you know, that they've generated, but they're not practicing them and they're going out licensing. So are they a patent troll? I mean, the way that I make the distinction, and I think a lot of people would agree, is that uh, you, you separate the wheat from the chaff. You look at the portfolio and you look at what is a poor quality asset or a good quality asset. If somebody's got a good quality asset with good solid claims and they're going out and, you know, and, you know you've got an inventor uh, that's got a patent that's a very strong patent that, that has some applicability with their parties, Sure. Why not being you know being able to go out and 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 monetize that? There's you know that that kind of separates the companies that are going out acquiring this, and then going out after a hundred companies and extracting a million dollars a piece on patents that have poor quality. That's that's not good behavior. Where do you see inventing and IP monetization going? What needs to happen for IP rights to be taken more seriously as business assets? It's hard for smaller companies because you have a limited budget. And so you have to make a decision on whether or not to to pat to file a patent to keep it as know-how or trade secret or to publish, right? And so, in in a lot of times, unfortunately, until they get the budget up and going, 
you know, they may do a file a provisional or they may just file in the U.S. because that going overseas is, is much more challenging on the budget. So you have to make this decision. So I look at it as not inventing, but as innovation. So as you're innovating as a company, you're trying to, to go into product development, you're trying to figure out what's going to happen. You know, IBM called it the 10-year the outlook, which is really looking at five to 10 years down the road. What is my business going to look like? What is my products and solution set going to look like? How do I take and backtrack that to today and say, how do I enable that business to happen? Because I want to sell my products 10 years without any fear of infringement. Okay, so now I have to landscape. What are my competitors doing? What is the world getting into? Where are others spending their R&D dollars? How do I innovate now and protect that innovation? Maybe file a patent that, that helps to look at some of that business model going forward. So really, it's a futuristic kind of a thing because patents, you know, they don't issue overnight. So mm -hmm. it's really a whole innovation. And then you have to figure out what is the right mix. I used to call it integrated intellectual asset management, which is really the whole IP stack. What should I protect via patents? What should I uh, keep as know-how or trade secret? What should I have you know, published to, you know, to tell the world what I'm doing? All of that, try and figure out what is the right mix of intellectual property to protect that innovation going forward. You're on the board of directors of the Center for Intellectual Property Understanding. Correct. Is there a role for IP awareness, uh, call it IP literacy, uh, for students, consumers, and others, say non-professionals? Absolutely. So I think one of the key misunderstandings of intellectual property is that it's something that's, a you know, leave it to the patent attorneys. It's something that's a, a legal um, issue for, you know, for, for the normal person not really to be concerned with. But yet actually, on the flip side, everybody should be concerned about it because everywhere from looking at music rights and copyrights, I mean, everybody listens to music and trying to see a lot of the bad behavior that's happening there with, with uh, you know, stealing, um, uh, you know, some of that copyright, some of that uh, music rights and, you know, published rights and, you know, even infringing patents. Having a basic understanding at a conceptual level, you know, what a patent is, what a copyright is, understanding what that means to innovation and how to capture innovation using these different instruments that you can use that are readily available to every, everyone uh, and being able to, to capture that innovation and protect it. Protecting is what's most important. And university setting, I think that's, be, you know, we're missing a lot because in business schools, legal schools, engineering schools, I think there should be fundamental basic courses on intellectual property understanding, understanding what it is, um, what the value is, and how to protect it and, and, and how to really reflect uh, how, what that means to you as you go on in your journey of your professional career as a businessman. Right. You know, how can this make a difference for me? Whether you're a creator or a consumer, you need to know something about IP. Absolutely. Creators, most certainly because you have to figure out, as I say, ways to capture innovation. A consumer, because, you know, if you're right, you know, they're, you know, copying DVDs or, or you know, copying music and stuff. Think about what you're doing and, and, you know, is this the right thing to do? Is this, but understanding the whole world of copyright and, and understanding why uh, a, a music creator or copyright creator has spent a lot of energy, you know, doing this. So respecting those rights is very important. What, what do you know today, Brian, about intellectual property that you wish you had known when you were starting out? Uh, when I first started out, I think the world was a far different place because there were only a handful of companies that were really recognizing what this value of intellectual property is. Uh, really, what has changed and in, in what I know now is that uh, there is a value. There is um, there's risk, 
which I've learned a lot about from, from being at Aon and trying to really manage the whole risk atmosphere and looking how insurance can really help that, uh, but also value, looking at the real value of innovation, being able to capture it and extract the value, not just through licensing, but the direct value to your revenue stream. How can these patents generate revenue for me? Well, it relates to this business. It relates to these products. The very essence of those claims are embodied in these products. That's value to the company. But being able to understand and have the CEO understand what that value means and why it's important to make this investment um, is very important. And value is not always about revenue generation. Sometimes it's about uh, uh, retaining uh, clients or attracting them or other, other issues. You know, having companies know that they're innovating and that innovation is resulting in new leading edge products and in, in leading edge innovation. IP is not well reflected on the balance sheet. It's goodwill swept into goodwill still. There have been discussions about changing that for as long as I can remember, at least to yeah. 30 years. Um, what will it take to get IP on the balance sheet and will it make a difference? It, it will happen. Um, I think the, the uh, financial markets. And actually, we've done a lot of day on and educating the financial markets and, and you know, so the private equity communities and a lot of the lending community, but also the banks and, and, um, and, and, and the whole financial community on really what that value is, because a lot of them just don't understand it. You know, they see, um, you know, it's not reflected on, um, you know, when you do a credit rating for a company and, you know, it's not reflected on, on really the value of what they have from intellectual property standpoint. Once that inflection point happens, once that the markets have a true understanding on, on a standardized way, and that's the key point, is there has to be a standardized way to value intellectual property. There's lots of people with different theories and different constructs of doing Black-Scholes analysis and doing market income and cost methods for valuation, uh, but you really have to combine that, and that's what we're doing at Aon, combining this whole quantitative way to measure value with a qualitative uh, uh, valuation as well, which really looks at the whole coverage aspect and the opportunity itself and the risk uh, elements associated with their intellectual property. Combining those two together to create a standardized methodology and a way to value this is really what the, what the world needs. And once it understands and embraces this, that'll get reflected on a balance sheet and the pressure will be on to companies to, uh, to regularly report, to look into the, to what they have and report that on a quarterly basis. Is there a resistance on a part of some companies to include IP on the balance sheet? Is there a, a, what's the downside of that? It's something that becomes reportable and something that you have to mm. uh, achieve. So a company, if, if they're reporting a value on the balance sheet of their intellectual property and the ba ba that balance is declining, mm. they have to address it. Right. So the risk is if they're not doing the right things to protect innovation and to protect and preserve that value, um, then, then it's going to become another detriment to them as a company to right. be able to fix. It's an and so it's that's an why asset. companies are, are, are really afraid to do it. It's an asset they need to write down if it, yes. if it doesn't perform. And I guess Correct. that's a fear. If you don't, if it doesn't perform, then you're, you're, you're scrutinized. Mm -hmm. Exactly. What organizations like the Center for IP Understanding are doing, we have this new organization called the US IP Alliance. There's been a lot of, you know, there's, there's several of these organizations that are doing Yeoman's work with trying to educate the world on the importance, the value of, of innovation 
uh, innovation can take all different flavors, but really understanding what innovation means, how it can really reflect value for a company in a lot of different ways, like we talked about. But, you know, I applaud organizations like that for doing so. Understanding IP Matters has been speaking with Brian Hinman, veteran IP rights manager and licensing expert. If you would like to learn more about Hinman and his work at Aon IP Solutions, visit aon.com. Understanding IP Matters is brought to you by the Center for Intellectual Property Understanding and its supporters. Visit CIPU at understandingip.org. Follow us on Twitter at Center for IP. This episode was produced and edited by Nathan Tower. Content conveyed by Understanding IP Matters is for informational purposes and does not reflect the views of CIPU or its affiliates.